All right, our third and final scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 33 through 37. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own? Or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Author of life, we thank you for your word, and we ask that as we reflect upon it, that your spirit would be with us and would help us to understand it better. Amen. Sometimes, to really appreciate how a story starts, we have to know where it's going. In some way, this is the philosophy underlying the study of history. By knowing how things end, we can better understand the choices that led to that end. This is also a fairly common storytelling trope. If you've ever seen a movie or television show that starts in the middle of the action before jumping back in time, you're familiar with this idea. So it makes sense that before we enter into Advent, before we rehearse the narrative of the Incarnation, we take time to remember where everything is leading. On this Christ the King Sunday, our scripture takes us into one of the final scenes in the life of Jesus. Having been arrested in the garden, Jesus is now facing the judgment of Pilate. And as we read this account, it's important to keep in mind that when it comes to the Gospel of John, understanding the truth doesn't necessarily mean presenting an accurate historical account. The writings of John are some of the latest texts written that managed to make it into our canon. As a result, this version of the Gospel is most hostile to Judaism and the most eager to excuse the actions of Pilate. But even so, we can receive illumination from the line of questioning that Pilate pursues. Are you the king of the Jews? inquires Pilate. If the answer to this question was yes, then Pilate does have a reason to be involved. If Jesus declares himself king of the Jews, then he would officially be an enemy to the state, a rival to the imperial order. So in classic Jesus fashion, Jesus chooses to give a non-answer. Do you ask this on your own? 
or did others tell you about me? Rather than give a straight answer, Jesus is trying to force Pilate to figure out the answer, as he's done so many other times to other people throughout his teachings. But in this case, Pilate seems just as skilled as Jesus in redirecting a conversation. I have heard from your people about you. What have you done? In other words, tell me why you are here. Why do people think you are a troublemaker worth my attention? And it's here that Jesus offers a concession. My kingdom is not from this world. Aha! The offense is admitted. Even if Jesus has not named himself as the king of the Jews, he has named himself as a king. Pilate grabs hold of this admission. So you are a king. Again, a non-answer from Jesus. You say that I am a king. There's no denial of this claim, simply an acknowledgement of what others have been saying about him. But then he continues, For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And so the answer is half-named. Not only is Jesus a king, but now it would seem that his kingdom is truth itself. Everyone who is a servant of truth is a subject of Jesus. This claim to lordship is the offense for which Jesus died. Through this claim, Christ posed a threat to the powers and principalities of this world. It should not surprise us that the proclamation of the kingdom is at the heart of the crucifixion because the proclamation of the kingdom is the very heart of Jesus's ministry. The works of healing and love that he performed were the initiation of the kingdom of God. By siding with the poor and the marginalized, Christ threatened the status quo. Christ was a revolutionary who promised to remake the world in the image of God. So what has happened to the revolutionary Jesus? Where did the Savior go who brought not merely salvation in the next life, but transformation in this world as well? There's always been an undercurrent in Christianity devoted to asking these questions. In the end of the 19th century, that undercurrent took on the identity of the social gospel. And as World War I was drawing to a close, Walter Rauschenbusch undertook the task of writing a systematic theology for the social gospel. Of prime importance to this movement is making sense of the kingdom of God. In fact, the kingdom is so central to the social gospel that Rauschenbusch declared, this doctrine is itself the social gospel. Without it, the idea of redeeming the social order will be but an annex to the orthodox, orthodox conception of the scheme of salvation. If this doctrine gets the place which has always been its legitimate right, the practical proclamation and application of social morality will have a firm footing. To those whose minds live in the social gospel, the kingdom of God is a dear truth, the marrow of the gospel. 
Now, to this day, Rauschenbusch's work remains one of the clearest and most profound expressions of what it means to be committed to serving the kingdom of God. Like the reformers through the ages, he saw the complacency of the church around him. He bristled at the way that the church had become comfortable defending the injustices of the status quo. So he explains the importance of recognizing the sovereignty of God by writing, the kingdom ideal is the test and corrective of the influence of the church. When the kingdom ideal disappeared, the conscience of the church was muffled. If the kingdom had stood as the purpose for which the church exists, the church could not have fallen into such corruption and sloth. Theology bears part of the guilt for the pride, the greed, and the ambition of the church. Well, clearly, the kingdom ideal still is not the purpose for which the church exists. The church is still scandalized by clergy who steal from their flocks to enrich themselves. It is afflicted by people who wear the label Christian only for the social currency that it imbues. It's plagued by those who are so proud that they refuse to listen to or see others. And yet, despite these realities, the words of Rauschenbusch could have been written today. He surveyed the state of Christianity in 1917 and observed, even today, many Christians cannot see any religious importance in social justice and fraternity because it does not increase the number of conversions nor fill the churches. Thus, the practical conception of salvation, which is the effective theology of the common man and minister, has been cut back and crippled for lack of the kingdom ideal. Social justice still remains a dirty word in many Christian circles. Those who are concerned only about inner conversion bemoan preaching that is too political. The kingdom of God is pushed off to the distant future. The message that Christ preached, that the kingdom of God is at hand, fades into the background. Rather than Christ first, people's loyalties become family first, or party first, or America first. Christ the King Sunday is an excellent day for us to recommit ourselves to Christ. It is a chance for us to affirm that Jesus Christ is, in fact, our Lord. This recommitment is not one to be taken lightly. At times, it will put us at odds with our family. It may cost us friendships. And indeed, it may even put us in opposition to secular governments. In our own time, we witness the antagonism between the kingdom and the world in churches like Central UMC in Detroit, City Well UMC in Durham, North Carolina, Columbus Mennonite in Ohio, and Mancos UMC in Colorado, who have sheltered people from ice in an effort to keep families together. Historically, this antagonism was seen in the European resistance that sheltered Jews from the Nazi regime an abolitionist who helped slaves escape to freedom in antebellum America, in the work of reformers who denounced the excessive luxuries of the medieval church 
in the deaths of the early martyrs who were seen as a threat to Roman society, all the way back to Christ, who died for setting himself as a rival to the emperor. The law of love is the law of the land in the kingdom. So it is inevitable that there will be conflict between this law and the laws of business, of power, of war. But it's only in these moments of tension that we realize whether or not we actually put Christ first. Again, Rauschenbusch offers us words of wisdom. He happily declares, the kingdom, is, the kingdom is for each of us the supreme task and the supreme gift of God. By accepting it as a task, we experience it as a gift. By laboring for it, we enter into the joy and peace of the kingdom as our divine fatherland and habitation. In other words, our Lord requires us to labor. But in offering our labor to the king of truth, we are making the noblest use of our efforts. There is peace and joy in the work of God. Even in the midst of trial, there is peace in knowing that our conscience belongs only to God. As we enter into Advent, let us anticipate the incarnation of Christ. But let us also anticipate the fulfillment of the kingdom. Let us labor as our Lord labored. Let us commit to the King of truth. Amen. <laughs>